Nate might have to take over a little early here. <clears throat> Verse 28, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of adultery, I'm sorry, uh, starting over in verse 32, but I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. You may be seated. As Glenn indicated, we plan to be continuing the series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that's ever preached, and uh, looking at the passage that was just read here this morning, Jesus' teaching on adultery and divorce, as well as um, some related aspects as far as our thought life and so forth, some of the things that we'll be looking at here today. And for an outline for this morning, I've chosen to uh, pick out several uh, phrases from this passage, what we might consider key phrases, and then um, use those phrases kind of as a springboard to, to enlarge into uh, portions of that passage. So moving right into the message, the first phrase that we'd like to look at in verse 28, but I say unto you, words of Jesus, but I say unto you. Now what is Jesus saying? He's making a contrast from what you have heard, but I say unto you. And what is he saying beyond what is heard? And what Jesus is doing here, he is moving beyond what is seen to heart issues. In the Old Testament, there was a tendency for people to focus on action. The law in the Old Testament really did not focus too much on the heart and on attitudes. It focused more on what people were doing, what they were not doing. But even in the Old Testament, there were indications that actions alone or focusing alone on actions was not quite enough. And I've just picked out several verses that illustrate that. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2 says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. In other words, you are able to live in such a way as to be able to defend your actions. And you can claim that what you did was not wrong. There was nothing wrong with what you actually did. But this verse indicates that God looks beyond what we actually do to what's inside of us, to our heart. Uh, what's going on within. So even in the Old Testament, there was this uh, indication that focusing on actions was not quite enough. Uh, in Psalm, or not Psalm, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, this was the uh, situation when Samuel was going to look for a, 
a king to anoint, and he went to the house of Jesse, was looking at the sons of Jesse, and certainly he thought that the oldest son would be king. God's response to him was, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, indicating that focusing on what you see is not always enough because God sees your heart. He sees if it's corrupt or if it's pure. And then in the New Testament, it becomes increasingly clear that focusing on actions alone is not enough. And in uh, Matthew chapter 5, the passage we're looking at here, we see this phrase uh, six times. Ye have heard, but I say. And Jesus is going beyond what was heard up to this point, taking us beyond that. Contrast the values of the Old Testament with, with the values of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus presents in the New Testament. And several more verses. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. We are told not to judge before the time. In other words, don't jump to conclusions just simply based on what you see. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. In other words, not just what you see, but what's inside. And then shall every man have praise of God. You see, God looks beyond the actions to what is within. And again, some words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within, full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So when Jesus uses these words, but I say unto you, what he is doing is carrying us beyond what is easily seen and looking within at the heart, looking at what drives us, looking at our motives, looking at the, the desires that we are, are focusing on within. So Jesus is moving beyond what is seen to heart issues. And beyond that, the implication is that if your heart and your mind is corrupt, your life is corrupt. That's what Jesus is saying unto you. But I say unto you that whoever is lusting in his mind, it's the same as he commits adultery. So if your heart and mind is corrupt, your life is corrupt. You see, sometimes we as people are pretty good at putting on a false front. We can have a heart that's full of corruption and still do all the right things on the surface. You can allow your mind to wander anywhere it pleases and still force your body to do what appears right to those who are looking on, to those who are around you. You can appear your best sitting here in a pew on Sunday morning or teaching a Sunday school class or even standing in front of the church teaching. But God sees beyond that. He sees beyond the outward actions. And if you allow impurity to roam unbridled in your heart and fantasize about what you would like to do if you had the opportunity to God, it's as if you were doing it. Psalm 66, verse 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The Lord will not take what you say 
seriously if you foster this kind of impurity and iniquity within your hearts. Now, those are some pretty serious thoughts. And as we think about that, who among us could dare stand up and claim that we are not guilty? And perhaps the question comes to your mind, well, who then can be saved? Because I'm confident, I'm sure that every one of us has fostered thoughts within our mind that we would not want to have projected here in front of the church. We cover them up in our actions. So we might ask, who then can be saved? Well, in Christ, there is deliverance, there is forgiveness, there is freedom. But that's not really the focus of this passage. The focus of this passage is presenting the situation. So thoughts and actions to God are held on a fairly even um, level. Let's move on to another phrase found in verses 29 and 30. Actually, two phrases where Jesus says, And if I write, I offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. And then in the next verse, And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. Those are some pretty radical words. Pretty radical concept. And I ask the question, is this to be taken literally? Does Jesus mean what he's saying? If I would appear here in church next Sunday with my right hand missing, obviously you would wonder what's happened. What happened? And probably some of you would ask about it. Well, what happened to you? And if I would respond that I just could not keep my right hand from clicking the mouse on the wrong websites, so I had it amputated, what would you think? What would your response to that be? Well, there would be varied responses. Probably someone would think, you don't need to be so radical about it. Some of you would probably think, well, I'm sorry, but that's not going to take care of your problem. You've got a problem beyond your right hand. So what about these words of Jesus? What do we do with them? He says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out and get rid of it. If your hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. What do we do with such a statement from Jesus? Well, I have several observations on this statement and the drastic measures that are presented in these two verses. First of all, who am I to argue with Jesus? If Jesus said it, dare I question what Jesus said? Do I think that my opinion is better than his? And can we throw it out the window simply because it doesn't make sense to my logical way of thinking? Furthermore, we cannot refute Jesus' logic. Certainly, it is better to be missing an eye or a hand for this tiny, tiny segment of existence on earth that we call time than what it would be to allow our passions to destroy us for the vast expanse and immeasurable realm of eternity. So we cannot argue with his logic. A third observation 
if we follow Jesus' teaching in physical matters, why would we not follow his teaching in moral and spiritual issues? In other words, what I'm saying, if we have cancer in some part of our body, if you become aware that you have cancer in some part of your body, and if you have the option of removing that part of your body, removing that tumor, or removing that portion of your body, wherever it is, you really would not think twice about it. If you'd have that option, you would be glad to make that sacrifice. It's a price you would be more than willing to pay. If we cannot remove the section that is affected by cancer, we typically go to some pretty extreme measures, subjecting our body to all kinds of harsh and invasive treatments in order to kill that. If you would have an extremely aggressive invasive cancer in your eye that you know is likely to spread to other parts of your body, I doubt you would hesitate to have that eye removed because that's a matter of life and death. We recognize that cancer spreads and cancer kills. And we recognize that if we do not get rid of the cancer, it's going to get rid of us. So we willingly make that sacrifice because it is better than the option. We could say that cancer is like a rotten apple. The expression, one rotten apple would destroy the whole bunch, or one rotten apple would destroy the whole basket. And the idea behind that is a rotten apple against another apple that that moisture and that contamination there is going to spread to the apple that's next to it. Well, then that apple becomes rotten. It's going to spread to the apple next to that. And left alone, after a while, the whole bunch will be rotten. Well, not only is cancer like a rotten apple, lust is also like a rotten apple because lust does not stay in one place. If it's left alone, it will spread until it destroys our lives. So we really have no choice but to cast out that rotten apple and get rid of it, deal with it. If we follow Christ's teaching in physical matters with issues such as cancer, why would we not do it in moral and spiritual matters that are of so much greater significance? Another observation, it may be necessary to take drastic and painful measures. Now, I mentioned that if I would come to church next Sunday with my hand amputated, some of you would probably say, that's not going to take care of your problem. And you're right. It probably will not take care of my problem. It's probably deeper than what lies in my right hand. But the point I'm making is when it pertains to moral issues and when it pertains to matters of personal purity, we need to be willing to do whatever it takes, regardless of how painful or how drastic it may appear. And dealing with these issues can be downright painful. So what are some of the drastic and painful measures that we may need to take? One is confession. 
And confession of sin can be extremely painful. It can be embarrassing. It can be humiliating. And generally, we try to avoid it at all costs, just like we would try to avoid an amputation if there's any way we can avoid it. But if this is a step that's necessary to lead us towards deliverance, why would we avoid it? It may be painful, it may be drastic, but it may be necessary. So I'm looking at some of the painful measures that may be necessary. One is confession. Another is prevention. What can I do to allow this rottenness, or what can I do to prevent this rottenness from spreading through my life? Well, we need to do everything that we can to avoid temptation. That may be, we may need to prevent some things from happening. And I think we are very well aware of the necessity of having filters and accountability programs on our electronic devices. It's just a preventive measure. Knowing that I cannot always trust myself. And I need to put this preventive measure in place. If I know that there's someone watching over my shoulder, it's going to make a difference in what I do. I think we need to keep our devices in public places and not carry them where they're going to be used alone. Some other methods of prevention. When you're traveling alone, Sometimes you encounter temptations that you would not encounter otherwise. And maybe for some of you, it may be necessary to avoid traveling alone or avoid going to certain places. There may be sacrifice involved. Certainly, being without your right eye or your right hand is a matter of tremendous sacrifice. But you see, if it if it's a matter of cancer, you are willing to make that sacrifice for the greater advantage that it will give you. What about sacrificing for the sake of personal purity? Are you willing to make sacrifices? For many of you, giving up your personal device, your cell phone, would almost be as hard as giving up your right hand. Because we've learned to depend on it. We keep our schedules, we keep our address books, we keep all kinds of information, and it becomes like our right hand. But if necessary, would you be willing to make that sacrifice to keep that rottenness from spreading? Sometimes a job change may be necessary. You might have a job that puts you in a position of temptation, You may have a job that puts you in company that tends to lead you downward. And if you are in a situation that you recognize is not good for your spiritual health, are you willing to make that sacrifice, to make that change? Are you willing to sacrifice your salary and take a cut if necessary? In reality, this temporary sacrifice may really be a small price to pay in the long run. I'd like you to think about what the rotten apple may be in your life. What is this rottenness that needs to be cast out, that needs to be gotten rid of? 
Jesus gave this, this teaching of cutting off that which offends in relation to lust and moral purity. And, and that's our primary focus here this morning. But it applies to other aspects of our lives as well. And I think we do well to, to perhaps broaden our perspective here a little bit this morning. Maybe there are other rotten apples in my life that I need to get rid of. Maybe it's not just lust. Maybe it's not just immoral thinking. What is the rotten apple that needs to be cast out of your life? Several suggestions. You might have many more. What about things that waste your time? At the end of the day or the end of the week, as you look back over your schedule, are there hours on end that basically accomplished nothing? Time that was wasted? Are there some apples that need to be thrown out that simply waste your time? What about feeding your fears? There are people that live in fear and there are people that, that just continually feed their fears. They, they just, it, it's their focus in life. What if? What can I do about this? Have you been mulling over your fears in an unhealthy way? Fearing the future, fearing what might happen? Have you been allowing your fears to interfere with your focus on God? To where your fears dominate your thinking more than God's faithfulness in your life. If that's the case, I would say that is a rotten apple that needs to be thrown out of your life because if not, that fear is going to overwhelm you and it's going to dominate your life. It's going to destroy your faith in God. What about feeding your addictions? Now, this is a very broad subject. Your addictions can be anything. Often it's closely related to your use of time. Are there things in your life that are dominating your use of time and that are destroying your focus on God, detracting you from what God wants you to do and what God wants you to be? Maybe this is something that needs to be cut out of your life. What is the rotten apple that needs to be thrown out? If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. Cast it from thee. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. These are the words of Jesus. It sounds drastic, but it's what Jesus is calling us to. Let's move on to another phrase I would like to look at, found in verses 31 and 32. Jesus says in verse 32, But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And I find this phrase to be somewhat interesting. Why did Jesus say that if you put away your wife, you're causing her to commit adultery? Why didn't Jesus just simply say, if you put away your wife, you're committing adultery? Does this mean that the man is really not responsible? That the man is free? And it's the woman that faces the, the responsibility here? Well, first of all, he did address the men as well. He did say, he goes on to say, whoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. In Luke 16, he says, whosoever putteth away his wife 
and marrieth another, committeth adultery. So the man is responsible, but why does he say, whosoever shall put away his wife causeth her to commit adultery? Now remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' focus is to carry us beyond what we have been thinking up to that point. So many times he says, ye have heard that it has been said, but I say unto you, I want to carry your thinking beyond what you have heard before. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Yeah, you know that if you divorce your wife and marry another woman, you're committing adultery. But I want you to think beyond that. I want you to think about what you're doing to her. You are also causing her to commit adultery. You are also responsible for putting her in a position where she is vulnerable. And you are responsible. He is not saying, like people may have thought, that when I divorce my wife, from that point on, she's on her own. I have no responsibility. I have no accountability for her. I can go my way and forget about her. Jesus says that's not the case. He says, I want you to understand that if you divorce your wife, you are placing her in a vulnerable situation. And if she ends up marrying someone else and living in adultery, you share the responsibility for her relationship. So, in answer to our question, is the man not guilty? Jesus is giving a very clear answer. He is responsible not only for himself, but also for his wife and what happens to her. You see, divorce is merely a condition that is granted and acknowledged by civil authority. Divorce is only on the level of civil authority. It has absolutely nothing to do with our status in the eyes of God. It does not change our status. Although men may try, they cannot put us under that which God hath joined together. So even though a marriage is annulled in the eyes of the government, it is not annulled in the eyes of God as long as the partners are living. As long as your former spouse is alive and her former spouse is alive, you are responsible materially and spiritually. Now, I think it's always good for us to make these teachings of Jesus as practical as possible. And sometimes to make them practical, we need to get a little bit personal. Sometimes it may get a bit painful. So I'm going to ask the question, or I'd like you to ask yourself the question, have I abandoned my spouse? Have I abandoned my spouse. Now, I think you realize that I'm not talking specifically here about legal abandonment, what we refer to as divorce. For the most part, in our circles, we recognize the seriousness of divorce and we avoid that. We do not consider that an option. So I'm not focusing here necessarily on legal abandonment, nor is my focus primarily on financial abandonment. For the most part, we're pretty good at taking care of our families financially. In fact, maybe we're a little too good at it. And maybe sometimes our financial care 
for our families actually can become an excuse for abandoning them and not meeting their needs in other areas that may actually be more important. Our overemphasis on the financial may contribute to abandoning them in other ways. And in reality, if we take this teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount seriously, I think we recognize that this idea of financial luxuries may be one area in which we tend to be a bit too liberal. So if I'm not talking about legal abandonment, if I'm not talking about financial abandonment, what am I talking about? What other types of abandonment may there be? What about emotional abandonment? I would venture to say that there are spouses sitting right here this morning that feel abandoned emotionally. There is just not that connection. She or he has been put away on an emotional level. Does your spouse feel abandoned emotionally? If so, you need to recognize your responsibility for that. Husbands, do you give your wife the quality time that she needs? Is she able to share her heart with you without feeling threatened or without feeling that she is a bother? And wives, do your husbands feel your unwavering support to their leadership? Or does he feel threatened by your attempts to control his life? Do you offer him the support and admiration he needs? Are we guilty of this type of putting away our spouses? What about spiritual abandonment? Does your spouse feel abandoned spiritually? Are you concerned about the spiritual needs of your wife or of your husband? Do you take time to pray together? More than just a quick, meaningless routine. Is it something you look forward to? Something you just revel in that time of, of sharing and opening yourselves to each other? Do you share spiritual insights with each other? Share thoughts from your personal devotions? Share something that stood out to you from your Sunday school class discussion? Or are we guilty of abandoning spiritually? I think this is especially important for us as husbands. Our wives crave to hear from us what we are thinking how our relationship with God is going, what God has spoken to me through his word. We have that responsibility to be spiritual leaders. Let us not forsake our wives and our families. Well, how about domestic abandonment? And here again, for the most part in our circles, this usually isn't a problem, but maybe it is. Maybe, it's, maybe there are some things that we overlook. Is... Caring for the home and family, a shared responsibility? Or, as a man, does my focus on caring for my wife and family in a financial way overrun this idea of 
being involved in the home. Well, I provide the money, you take care of the children. Husbands, are you involved in child care and decision-making, or do you leave it to your wife? She desires your help. Wives, do your husbands come home from work to a well-cared-for house and a nutritious meal? Or are you so busy pursuing your own interests, whatever they may be, that he feels the abandonment of no clean laundry, no clean dishes, no cooked meals? What is our focus? Are we guilty of causing our partners to look in other places for fulfillment, whether it's emotional fulfillment, whether it's spiritual fulfillment, whatever it is, let us examine ourselves carefully in these areas. And as I think about this again, I cannot always declare my innocence in all of these areas. Jesus said, whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. Have I abandoned my spouse? And furthermore, on that same line, do I consider the influence my actions have on other people? Jesus indicated that the man who put away his wife is responsible for what she does. And I'd like for us to think about this morning the decisions we make, the way we live. What effect does that have on people around us? And in keeping with the theme of these verses, the way you dress, does it entice other people? The way you act and behave and interact with people, does it encourage godly behavior? And the way you look at people, does it encourage them to dress appropriately and act appropriately? Young men, the way you respond to someone who acts silly, does it encourage them to continue that kind of silly behavior? Sometimes I hear people comment that, you know, this comment might be made when we're discussing dress standards or something like that. Well, men just need to get a grip and learn to control their eyes and their thoughts. There's some truth to that statement, but it still causes me to cringe just a bit when I hear it. It is true. Men are responsible for themselves. They need to take responsibility for their actions. But at the same time, for a woman or for anyone to be irresponsible in how they portray themselves and how they act and appear and then just say it's everyone else's problem is irresponsible. I'd like to turn to Galatians chapter 6. If you could turn to this passage. Galatians chapter 6 is a fairly familiar passage. And there are verses in this passage that we here quoted pretty often. They're not always quoted within context. For example, verse 2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens. And that is a verse that we might hear or see as a motto or as a theme verse for a, a brotherly sharing program, brotherhood sharing plan. And that's good, but I'd like to think about the context of this passage. Verse 1 says, if a man is overtaken in a fault, if a man 
is struggling with sin, I want you to do what you can to help that man. The context of this whole passage is people who are struggling in sin. Verses 7 and 8 talk about sowing to the flesh and reaping in the flesh. It's people who are struggling to the sin, in sin. The contrast of that in the following verse is sowing to the spirit and reaping life. Verse 9 talks about not being weary in well-doing, doing what is right. So the whole context of this passage is helping people to do what is right. There are two verses that I'd like to point out. Verse 2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens. Verse 5 says, For every man shall bear his own burden. Now, I've already looked at these verses and thought, I don't really get it. These verses seem to contradict each other. They don't seem to mesh. Bear everyone else's burdens, but everyone's supposed to bear their own burdens. But I really do think they mesh well. Verse 2 says, bear ye one another's burdens. What this verse says, you are responsible for what you influence other people to do. You're supposed to bear the burden of helping your brother do what is right. Verse 1 says, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one. Bear ye one another's burdens. Help your brother do what is right. You are responsible for doing everything that you can to help your brother make the right decisions. Verse 5, every man shall bear his own burden. Furthermore, you are also responsible for your actions. You're responsible for what you do. So you're responsible for helping your brother do what's right. You are also responsible for doing what is right yourself. Now, what is missing in this passage? You're supposed to bear other people's burdens. You're supposed to bear your own burden. What is missing? There's no verse here that says you are supposed to expect everyone else to bear your burden. You see, you're responsible to bear theirs. You're responsible to bear your own but we are not to expect everyone else to bear our burden. In other words, you cannot place the blame on someone else for what you do. You can place, place the blame on yourself for influencing someone else. But when it comes to you, you are responsible for yourself. You are responsible for your influence on others. But you cannot blame others for the decisions that you make. You see the accountability that is portrayed here that meshes with the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. Let us not be guilty of causing someone else to stumble by our actions. Let us consider the influence we have on others. There's another phrase in verse 32. The last two words, whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. I want to focus for a little bit on this word, committeth. Committeth adultery. Now, I'm going to put in a little bit of a, a plug here for the King James Version. 
there are some people who struggle with the language used in the King James Bible. And it's obvious. There are terms used in the King James Bible that we do not commonly use today. That's, that's obvious. But there's also a beauty and a depth of meaning in some of these words that is lost in a lot of translations. So while I see value in using multiple translations for study and to compare translations and to broaden our understanding, I also encourage you not to disregard the King James Version, especially for public reading. So I might be pointing out some of those advantages in, in further sermons as we go through this. But this morning I want to think especially for this one aspect, and that's the E-T-H ending that we see on this word, committeth. He, um, he that is divorced committeth adultery. I understand this suffix as used in the King James Version indicates present continuing action. Something that is happening presently and continues to happen. I'd like you to remember that. Whenever you read a word that ends in E-T-H, think present, continuous action. So it's not something that just took place in the past, nor is it something that happens currently one time and is over with, but it is something that is present and continues to take place. I'll give you several examples. Uh, If we go back to verse 28, Jesus said, But I say that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, there we have that ending, looketh on a woman. Now, Jesus does not say that whoever saw a woman hath committed adultery with her. He doesn't say whoever took a glance at a woman, but whoever looketh upon a woman. So what he is saying, whoever continually, intentionally gazes upon a woman. And the King James Version very efficiently expresses that with one word, looketh that intentional continuing to gaze upon. Another example of this ending, in John, verse, John 3, verses 16 and 17, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I think this is a, a verse that should be understood by those people who, who teach the once saved, always saved idea. They say, all you need to do is believe on Jesus and make a commitment, and that takes care of you for life. This verse says, whoever believes continuously, whoever presently and continuously believes on Jesus is a person that has everlasting life. Verse 36, he that believeth presently, continuously on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not. He that does not continue presently to believe shall not see life. I think that's about as clear as it can get if you understand the concept. So what is the significance of that as we look back at verse 32 here? Whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Now obviously, teaching on divorce and remarriage is something that many people have questioned and discussed as it's presented in the New Testament. And if you want to believe a certain way, you probably won't have to look far to find someone who will teach what you want to believe. 
Obviously, I think our desire is to see what the Bible teaches. One teaching that is commonly heard as it pertains to divorce and remarriage is that if you are remarried, if you find yourself in that position, all you need to do is acknowledge that you made a mistake, confess it as sin, God will forgive you, and that takes care of it. You may continue to move on from there because it's taken care of. And those people would say that from that point on, it's no longer an adulterous relationship. But what does this verse say? Whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. He continuously lives in that situation of adultery. It continues to be an ongoing adulterous relationship. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. My understanding of the teaching of Jesus is that for a person who is living in this type of a relationship, a person who is married to someone whose former spouse is still living, there's only one option. As long as you're living with that one person or with that person, you're presently continuing to live in adultery, and the only option is to forsake that relationship. Now, just for what it's worth, I compared 29 different translations in looking at this verse. And out of those 29, only four, apart from the King James Version, used this word committeth. Most of them used the word commits, which indicates a present status, but it, it fails to emphasize that ongoing aspect of the adultery that is taking place. So the teaching is just a little bit weaker. And the worst translation I read said, whoever marries a woman divorced in this way makes himself look as though he has committed adultery. That sounds pretty watered down to me. You know, something that happened in the past makes himself look as though he has committed. But the idea here is that it is a continuing relationship. Well, we've been talking this morning about lust. We've, talking about, we've been talking about heart issues. Not just a matter of what people do, but what goes on within We've been talking about getting rid of the rotten apples in our lives, the areas of sin that need to be dealt with, the things that lead us into temptation. We've been talking about our responsibility for the actions of others. I want to conclude with a tale of two relationships. And I'm using that that wording, um, not to uh, say this is these accounts are not true. They are true accounts. But a tale of two relationships. And these two relationships I'd like to focus on this morning have quite a few similarities. Both relationships involve a woman and a man. And both of these relationships involve a woman who was doing everything she could to seduce the man. 
I thought about naming this point a tale of two rotten apples. And if you want to refer to it that way, you may. Neither one is a pleasant story, but they both have lessons for us to learn. Neither one of these relationships really involve love. And in both cases, the man ended up a prisoner as a result of his response to the temptations he faced. And both of these stories may be hard for some people to understand the responses, the decisions that people made. But in these accounts, there is one striking difference, and that is the decisions of the men involved and where they ended up. Can you guess the, the relationships I'm referring to? One is the relationship between Delilah and Samson, and the other is the relationship between Potiphar's wife and Joseph. A lot of similarities. And there may be things about both stories that you find hard to understand. And I would suggest that most of you women have a hard time understanding how Samson could be so naive, so brainless, and so dim-witted. You read that story, and he's basically the epitome of stupidity. It was so obvious what was happening. So obvious what this woman was trying to do. She did not love him in the least. She was looking only for what she could get out of this. It wasn't about Samson. It was all about herself. You see, she was given a tremendous offer. The lords of the Philistines came to her, and I don't know how many lords there were, but they told her, if you can find the secret to Samson's strength, every one of us will pay you 1,100 pieces of silver. Were there five lords? 5,500 pieces of silver? To put that in perspective, Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver, and Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. These lords said, every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Was there love in this story? Not at all. So I picture Delilah flaunting herself before Samson, just trying to get him on the hook. He wanted more. And when she had him on the hook, she would say, you want me? Here's the price. Tell me your secret. And every time he told her how he could be defeated, she tried it. He knew what she was doing. It was so obvious. The Philistines were there waiting for him every time. He knew that if he told his secret, he was bound to be defeated. But he continued to keep company with this rotten apple of a woman. And that rottenness just took him to places he did not want to go. That rottenness was spreading through his body, and it was killing him. It cost him dearly. It cost his vision. It cost his freedom. Eventually, it cost his life. And if you keep company with this kind of rottenness, the same thing is going to happen to you. It will cost you no less. And then there was Potiphar's wife and Joseph. 
Now, if it is hard for a woman to understand how Samson could be so naive and so foolish, perhaps it is just as hard for a man to understand how Joseph could be so resistant. In the situation he was, most of you men would understand how great of a temptation it would be to be far from home, far from family, far from any accountability, in the presence of a woman who is daily throwing herself upon you. Well, Joseph recognized that there was no way he could resist this without getting out of there. He recognized that the rottenness of that apple was going to spread to his body unless he cut himself off. He fled. He realized what was offending him, and he cast it off, cut it out and cast it from him. Well, that decision cost Joseph dearly, too. It was a tremendous sacrifice on his part. When you lose your eye or you lose your hand, it's a sacrifice. For Joseph, it was a sacrifice. It cost him his job. It cost him his reputation. It cost him his freedom. He spent years in prison. And I'm sure as he was in prison, he had plenty of time to evaluate the decisions he made and the consequences of those decisions. But I believe they were years that were spent without regret because he continued to live a faithful life. He continued to do what is right. Well, you know the end of the story. Joseph's sacrifice cost him a lot. But in the end, the sacrifice was worth it. It doesn't matter how much you need to sacrifice to do what is right. In the end, if you make the right choices, it will be worth it all. Young women, take a lesson from Delilah and Potiphar's wife. If you portray yourself as a rotten apple and try to throw yourself at a man in inappropriate ways, he has two options. He's going to have to get out of there as fast as he can or he will give in. And either way, you lose. Neither option is a win for you. If you encourage godly behavior, you can both be winners. Young men, take a lesson. If you're not a Joseph, if you do not, if you're not willing to sacrifice and cast out that which offends you, you will become a Samson. You cannot keep company with rottenness without it affecting your life. The price of permitting rottenness is simply too high. I'm going to close with two verses from Galatians chapter 6. And perhaps you will understand these verses in a little different light this morning as we consider them in the context of this passage of doing what is right and helping others to do what is right. Young men, young women, older men, older women, let us not be weary in well-doing, in doing what is right. Regardless of the sacrifice you make today, 
For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The truth is, if we faint, we will also reap. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. I invite you to kneel with us for prayer. Father, again, we're amazed at the teaching of your word and the clarity of the words of Jesus as he looks beyond what everyone else around us sees and he looks at our hearts. Lord, we want to open our hearts before you and pray that you would search our lives and examine us and see if there be any wicked way in us. Lord, would you cleanse us and lead us in the way that is everlasting. May you give us the grace to do what is right so that in due season we can reap the rewards that you would have for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.